Okay, last week, if you recall, uh, Jesus had been preaching in the temple, but it was late in the afternoon, and he had left and gone out to the Mount of Olives. And that's where all the discourse took place regarding the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the end of time. And uh, he was talking with his apostles there. And he told them, of course, that if you call that... this destruction of Jerusalem would take place during that generation. And he gave them some signs to look for to know when that was going to happen so that they would be able to escape the destruction. But he also told them about some things that was going to happen to them prior to that. And then he talked about the uh, end of time, his return from heaven, and uh, that nobody knows but the Father when that's going to be, and there won't be any Uh, warning, no signs to let you know when that's going to happen. And so his uh, advice then was just to be ready at all times, and then it really won't matter when that happens, right? If you're ready, it won't matter. And so Jesus never tells us to do something without telling us how to do it, right? And so he says you just need to be ready. And so he begins to tell some parables to help us to understand how to be ready when the Lord comes again. And so the first parable was about the householder that had some servants and he was going out, going away for a while. And while he was away, he gave his servants some tasks to perform while he was gone. And of course, when he returns, is he going to find those servants performing those tasks or doing other things? And of course, as you know, the ones that were, were be, would be blessed that we're doing what the uh, householder, that is our Father in Heaven, told them to do. And those that were not would be uh, cast in that place where he said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second parable was about the ten virgins, the five wise, five foolish. And uh, it seems to me it's, it's more about teaching uh, perseverance. You know, uh, living the Christian life is not a sprint, it's more like a, a, uh, a marathon. And so you're gonna to have to be ready for the long haul. And it seems to me that is kind of the message in, in that parable, uh, to be ready. The third parable was the parable of the talents. And it was similar to the first one in that we're told in order to be ready when the Lord comes to be, uh, I, I like the way Jesus worded it, remember, when he was 12 years old and his family left him, left, headed back to Nazareth and didn't realize that Jesus was stayed behind and, and he was in the temple. When they came back and found him, he said, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? That should be us, right? We should be about our father's business. If you want to be ready when the Lord returns and be about your father's business. So that's the parable of the talents is all about that, but it adds one more little uh, nugget of information And that is that God doesn't tell us to do something without giving us the wherewithal to get it done, right? So while we're doing his work and about his business, we're using the things that God gave us to accomplish those tasks. And so that's the parable of the talents. And we'd gotten down to uh, his warnings about the judgment, and I kind of class that as another parable. But are there any, any comments, any questions at all about these first three parables or about the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of time, any about 
about those things before we begin. Okay, turn your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin there in verse 31. Make this thing work. Oh, I put this little map in here once again just to show you that, uh, as you recall, as I just said a few minutes ago, Jesus had left the temple and had gone out to the Mount of Olives, and that's where all of this discussion at this point is taking place. You see the Mount of Olives is, I don't know how well you can see that, but it's just south of the city of Bethpage there. And if you look just to the west on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives there, you'll see the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus will be going there uh, in the next few lessons as well. Warnings about the judgment. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd uh, separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, you who are blessed of my, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited you, me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and, and you visited me, and in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will say to him, Lord, uh, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you and thirsty and so forth? When did we see that? I don't remember seeing you, Lord, and doing these things. And what was his answer? In, in that you've done it to who? The least, the least of these. Then you've done it unto me. So, um, of course, he goes on to talk about those, the goats on the other, on his left. And he said, I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. Thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. Sick and in prison, you didn't come visit me. And he told those, depart from me, uh, cursed ones, into eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So, in that you've done it to the least of these. So, uh, in my mind, at least, we're still talking about what we need to be doing as children of God to be ready should the Lord return in our lifetime now. Of course, if you think about it, we don't know if the Lord's going to return in our lifetime or not, do we? But we do know this, if he doesn't return in our lifetime, then our time on this earth is going to end at some point, right, before the Lord comes, if he delays that. And so these things about being ready would apply to us, every human being, right? Because when your time on this earth ends, then... For you personally, that might as well be the end of time, right? Your, your uh, judgment is set at that point. So we need to be ready at that point in time as well and not just waiting for when the Lord returns. So in this lifetime, we need to be about our Father's business so that when we pass from this earth, if we should do so before the Lord comes, then we will have, done, we will have been, been ready to depart. So... What is the lesson then? We've seen three parables that tell us how to be ready, that teach us uh, lessons as how to be ready. What's, what's the lesson here? 
okay, the, the greatest, Jesus has told us numerous times, the greatest in the kingdom will be, be the servant, right? Okay. And, of course, we see, uh, obviously, in the ones on his right hand were those who had served others and served even, I suppose, what we would consider the least. Sometimes we, uh, <laughs> I don't know, put people, some on pedestals and some on not, but whatever we might consider the least, then uh, those are the ones we need to serve. And we'll see more about that uh, in just a little bit later. Anything, any other comments? What else? I put in big letters on my notes here, compassion. Compassion. How, how many times now has Jesus just in the last five or six lessons that we've studied, if you forget all those weeks that Brian was leading the class and all the other Bible studies had just these six weeks or seven, however many it's been, how many times has Jesus talked about compassion? And uh, I didn't count them all up, but I can tell you it's more than once. <laughs> and uh, it, it, he referred to Hosea 6 and verse 6 at least twice. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. We talked about what that is. If uh, you go to offer your sacrifice to the Lord and you've had no compassion on your fellow man, God said your, your sacrifice is worthless. And so compassion is, uh, is pretty important. James 1 and verse 27 says this, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, so the, uh, the widows and orphans were kind of used frequently in the scriptures to identify those who were in the most need. That might be uh, the least of these maybe that Jesus was talking about uh, in, in society. And so compassion is, is an important thing. In fact, uh, we talked about humility a few weeks ago and, and how the Bible teaches us really you can't get to heaven without humility. You can't do it. That's how important it is. I'd say compassion is right up there too. Because compassion or lack thereof is what made the difference in the sheep and the goats. And this, Now that's, of course, not the only thing that can make that difference. We don't want to push that point further than it needs to be pushed. But it is that important that if uh, we leave this life and have not shown compassion to our fellow man, we're going to find ourselves on the Lord's left and not, not on the right. And so to, to those on the left in verse 41, he said, uh, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And I think uh, frequently we focus our attention on the eternal fire there as the punishment. And, and of course, that's, that's a terrible thing. It's, it's hard to uh, uh, even comprehend how bad that really would be, this eternal fire. But I want to direct your attention to just the phrase just before he talked about the eternal fire. What did he say? Depart from me. What does that tell you about the lost? No mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no 
no mercy and no grace. In other words, spend eternity out of the presence of the Lord, right? That always reminds me of 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. I won't read all of that. But verse 9 says, And these, that is the lost, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, to me, that's, that would be the worst part about being lost, is to be out of the presence of God forever and ever, never again, never again experience God's grace and mercy and love and kindness. We, see, we, we've never known a single day of our lives, have we, that we didn't experience God's love and mercy, patience, and kindness. What would it be? What would it be like to, to not ever experience that again? That's the worst part of being lost. The fire, eternal fire, and torment is, is bad too. I mean, that's terrible, but, but being out of God's presence is, is beyond my ability to even even think about how, how bad how bad that would be. Any comments or questions there? So compassion. Oh, right. John, I just had this thought, you know, one of the condemnations from the Sermon on the Mount of uh, the Pharisees uh, was that they did so much to be seen by others. You know, so much of their fasting and their prayers, everything was to be seen by others. And one common thread in these these three sections right here is that these are things that are often done when the bridegroom's away, when the master's away, and then your actions toward the least of these are not often going to be noticed by others. So you see that, see that contrast continuing there with what we do in secret or not to, be, uh, not to gain notoriety is going to be rewarded eternally by the master. Absolutely. Excellent point. Uh, I've heard it said, and I believe this is true, that character is how you behave when nobody's watching, right? And, and being a real child of God with real compassion, real love for the Lord, your fellow man, is what you do when nobody's watching. <laughs> You're not doing it just to be seen of men. Uh, I saw a, a list when this has been many, many years ago, 40-something, some odd years ago, somebody made a list of 10 things that you can do to be happy. And I only remember one of the 10, and it said, do something every day, do, do something good for somebody every day, but if they know you did it, it doesn't count, okay? So you gotta do something good for somebody just for, because it's the right thing to do, not to be, to be seen of men. So compassion, real genuine compassion and love for our fellow man, and therefore for our God above. Any other comments? Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, when Jesus had finished all these words, of course, that was quite a bit, all of chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be handed over for crucifixion. I still don't, I uh, think the apostles understood much about what was being said there. I mean, just previously when he'd said it pretty plainly, the Bible told us they just didn't comprehend what he was saying. But here he is he's saying it uh, yet again. Uh, in uh, 
Well, you can be turning to John chapter 12. We'll get there in just a second. John chapter 12. But Luke tells us in the meantime, it says, Now during the day he, that is Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning and come to him in the temple to listen to him. So Luke tells us now he's, he's changed his practice a little bit during this week. He had began the week spending the nights in Bethany in the daytime in Jerusalem preaching in the temple. Now he's spending the nights where? The Mount of Olives is where he's going at night. Now that's going to play into the crucifixion here. We'll, we'll see uh, in uh, lesson number seven. So that's where he's going to spend the nights. Okay, John chapter 12. Oh, it's, it's hard for me. I've looked over this and over this and over this, and I'm not sure exactly where Jesus was when this happened. But John chapter 12, verse 20, says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, if Jesus, whenever this happened, was still in the temple, of course, Gentiles weren't allowed into the temple. So Jesus would have had to come out of the temple to see these men. If he was still out on the Mount of Olives, then uh, that would be a different, different thing. Uh, but John goes on to, uh, to talk about in our lesson guide, it says final, Jesus' final public appeals to unbelievers. And it starts off, and Jesus answered them, saying. Uh, I don't know for sure who the them was. was that, did that include these uh, Gentiles that wanted to see Jesus? Was it just talking to Philip and, and uh, Andrew? Or was it all the apostles? Or who was that? Down in verse 34, it says, then the crowd answered him. And so at some point here, then there, a crowd had gathered. And uh, he never, the Bible never tells us with certainty that I've been able to find that uh, if these Gentiles ever got to come and see Jesus. I'm assuming <laughs> that the them included the, those Gentiles as well and that he was probably still out on the Mount of Olives. But I, it, I just I really don't know. I can't see the scripture that would tell us that with certainty. Anybody got any information on it? Okay. And so he said, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the, for the Son of Man to be, to be glorified. Back in John chapter 7 and verse 6, there his, uh, some people was trying to get him to go to Jerusalem to a feast there. And he said, my hour has not yet come. Okay, so he said, at that time said, my hour's not yet come. But here he's saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is in the last week of his life, probably still a couple of days away from when he would be crucified. So he's, he's saying now it's time. Uh, what does he mean then that the Son of Man to be glorified? I thought, I mean, you know, he is. He's going to be crucified is what's going to happen. He's going to be crucified. So what does it mean uh, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Well, 
Any thoughts about that? What it, I tell you what it did for me. It, it turned my mind to Philippians chapter 2. They're beginning about uh, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Jesus left heaven, humbled himself, left heaven, came to this earth to live as a person, a man, person just like you and me. You know what it means to get tired, know what it is to be thirsty, hungry, uh, disappointed, all of those kinds of things. Verse 9 says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, and that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and those who are upon the earth. So Jesus would be glorified in keeping the Father's commandments and the Father's will, right? So he's about to be crucified, but he's doing that because that's the Father's will. And so in all of that, he would be, he would be glorified. Any comments there? We got uh, David Neal, also uh, Josh back here. I was just going to say that it was a, a matter of he was saving the world with his death. Right, he's providing salvation, right? Okay. God's going to highly exalt him. Talking about um, Jesus, um, talking about his hour coming and uh, talking about glorifying John. I think John 12 um, complements this discussion very well because he talks about in John 12, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. And the very next thing he says there in verse 28 is, Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is indicating here that by going through with this, he's glorifying the Father because, as you said, he's fulfilling his will, and then in turn, the Father glorifies him. So, so always when he kept his, uh, God's commandments, he was glorifying him in, in all those ways. Bruce? Then we go to Revelation 5, the latter part of that chapter, as Jesus opens uh, the plan of salvation, that book, <coughs> the seals on it, thus signifying uh, God's plan of redemption for man being fulfilled that he's glorified in heaven as well uh, with all of them singing this new song how worthy, worthy he is to receive all glory and uh, Brother David Neal uh, so uh, you remember Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 verse 16 let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven so we're glorifying him every time we, we keep his commandments. Dave. I, I love this statement because um, uh, in John 1, verse 18, John tells us that uh, no one saw the Father except the only begotten. Uh, and he ends that section by saying he has explained him. I think part of what John is communicating, because he comes back to this phrase several times, that Jesus we glorified in the crucifixion. 
him, we didn't know God was the kind of God who's willing to live as a human and die as a human for his creation until Jesus. Until Jesus came and did all of those things, humanity had no idea their creator was this kind of creator. And it exemplifies just how worthy God is of worship by what he does in Jesus. And so when he makes a statement in John 17, um, uh, Father, glorify your son as he glorifies you, um, part of that is the illustration that what's going to happen is going to show to the world that God is worthy of worship beyond any other being because of who he is and what he does. Absolutely. So the son would glorify the father and vice versa. And we should glorify him, and we do as we keep his commandments. Anything else? Alan here. I think there may be a sense here as well in that, as Paul will write and other, other um, New Testament writers, how, how much Christ fulfilled the law, how the law was there. And the law did have some glory at the time, but Christ's glory is so far passing the glory of the law. He fulfills the law, and he provides us something new. And in his death, he's going to be doing that. So we have this moment where he will fulfill the law and totally overshadow any glory that it once had, which it did have, the writers tell us, but it pales in comparison to the glory that that he now will have moving forward. Yeah, the, the entire book of Hebrews teaches us exactly what you're saying, right? How superior the gospel and the law of Christ is to the old law. Okay, so he's talking about him being him, the son of man, Jesus being glorified as he kept the father's will. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it, it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Of course, we know how that works, right? You raise what wheat or corn or something, then the stalk dies and the, the seeds fall off. And then when it's uh, buried in the ground, then that, that, uh, germ of life is in it and it and it sprouts and grows back up and it produces more fruit so there a death has to take place first and uh he's of course here he's talking about his own death uh and talking about if the grain dies then it uh it bears much fruit and so here's some people have already pointed out that the fruit that jesus is going to bear is the means of salvation for the entire world right but he had to die first, like this uh, grain of wheat. So then he starts talking about verse 25. After talking about this dying, he says, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So uh, to bear fruit, do we have to die as well? Isn't that what he's saying? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to have to die to bear the fruit of salvation. And you're going to, like the grain, you're going to have to die as well to be able to access that that salvation. A couple of verses here tells us that. I looked at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, for he who has died is free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's what baptism is, right? It's burying the old man that you've put to death. The old man of sin is buried. And the new man that's a Christian, a child of God, is raised. So you've got to die first before you can produce fruit. Romans 8, verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. For, for if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Similar kind of statement in Colossians chapter 1 talks about, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So that principle of the, of the seed dying and then bringing forth fruit was true in the life of Jesus, and it's true in our, our lives as well or else we'll not be producing the fruit that God wants us to produce. Any other comments? Brother Joshua uh, uh, referred to verse 27, but now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came into, I, I came to this hour. So remember uh, in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, what did it say about Jesus? being the perfect high priest. Why, why was he able to be the perfect high priest? Because he suffered everything that we do yet without sin, right? Put yourself in, in Jesus' place here. How would you be feeling right now if you knew within another day or two you were going to be nailed to a cross and left hanging there to die? How would you be feeling? Jesus is feeling like that. <laughs> and we'll see when he gets in the gardens that he sweat like drops of blood. He was feeling what you and I would be feeling. And that's one reason why he could be the perfect high priest that he is. But he, but, but he didn't let that overcome him, right? He said, I'm feeling troubled. But am I going to ask God to remove this from me? No. He said, that's the reason I came. And I'm going to follow through. Yes, my, my soul has become troubled. But I'm not going to let that deter me from doing what the Father wants me to do. And in that, as we've already talked about, he's glorifying the Father, right? Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. By my count, this is the third time that God has spoken from heaven while Jesus was here on the earth. The first time was when he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Here's the one you should listen to now. And here this third time God speaks. And he's talking about glorifying the Father's name. And he says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That, that's what the voice said. So how has God glorified his name? Well, in, in all of the discussion we've just had, in all that he's done to provide salvation for us, in providing all of the evidence, being with Jesus, all of the uh, miracles that proved he is who he is, and his love and care for us, he's glorified his name in all of that. 
Any comments there? Verse 30, he says, this voice has come uh, not for my sake, but for yours. And so God is still providing evidence for faith, right? Faith based on evidence. You weigh the evidence and decide whether to believe that Jesus is the Christ or not. And the evidence convinces us that he is. And so here God is uh, speaking to uh, regarding Jesus again, or glorifying his name. And he said, this is for uh, your benefit, not for mine, Jesus said. Verse 31, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the ruler of this world, that would be oh, oh Satan himself, right? So uh, he says he will be cast out. How is that done? Up, up until now... Satan, there, there's been no means of forgiveness of sins, right? Satan uh, has a power over sin and death. But after Jesus sheds his innocent blood and provides for salvation, that takes the power away from Satan, doesn't it? So in that sense, he'll be cast out. And ultimately, Bruce referred to the book of Revelation. Ultimately, uh, God wins, Satan loses, and cast into that lake of fire and brimstone. So... In that sense, he's going to be uh, cast out. And of course, the blood of Christ, we read in Hebrews 9 and verse 15, if you say there was no salvation possible without the blood of Christ, then what happened to all those people who died before Jesus shed his blood on the cross? Well, Hebrews 9 and verse 15 tells us, right? The blood of Christ reached backward to all the faithful then, those that obeyed God's law and put their trust in him at that time, the blood of Christ reached back to them as well. So Satan no longer had uh, power over sin and death that he had had up until now. Jesus talks about himself being lifted up from the earth, being crucified. And, and so the crowd there in verse 34 is talking about the, the Christ. He says, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So that confused them a little bit because you're saying you're the Christ. And the law says the Christ is going to live forever. And you're saying you're going to be lifted up on the cross and would die. So in their minds, they couldn't mesh those two things. And uh, Jesus never really specifically answered that question to them in, in this context here. But, of course, we know the answer is that he would be raised from the dead. That would be the answer to that question. But he just he went on to say to them that uh, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. So rather than just answering their question there, he talked about the light, and of course he is the light. And uh, God is the source of all that's true and right and good. And, and he said, you just need to listen to the light while you have opportunity. But then he went on to say, after he had left them, he said there in verse 37, but though he had performed many signs before them, yet 
they were not they were not believing in him. Remember what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? You would think that will convince everybody that he's the Christ, right? Just just think about it. You raise somebody, but what about, what happened to the Pharisees? They just determined all the more to kill Jesus, and not only to kill Jesus, but let's kill Lazarus as well. So even in spite of all the proof and all the evidence that Jesus and God had provided, uh, they were still uh, not believing in him. And, and Jesus quotes from Isaiah, talked about their hearts being hardened. And uh, it's, it's an interesting verse 40, for he has blinded their eyes. So is it God's fault then that uh, they didn't believe? It says he's blind, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Is it God's fault? I read one explanation of it, and I think this, to me, a picture is worth a thousand words. It talks about uh, wax and clay. What happens to wax if you heat it? It's going to melt, right? What happens to clay if you heat it? It's going to harden. And our hearts can be like that. And the same thing that produces faith in one will just harden somebody else's heart all the more. It's not that God is forcing them to do it. They've chosen that kind, uh, that kind of heart to have. You know, uh, Proverbs 4 and verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We can control what kind of heart we have. And uh, the Pharisees has decided what was most important to them was their wealth and their position in life, and they weren't going to let anything uh, interrupt that. And every miracle that Jesus did, everything that he said, just hardened their heart all the more. And so it was in that sense that God hardened their hearts. It wasn't that he forced them to be that way. Your thoughts? Four minutes. Um, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. What did Jesus say about confessing him? you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you. So just believing in him alone wasn't enough, was it? Was it enough? Because they still uh, love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Look down at verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. So why do you spend so much time studying the Bible anyway? You, this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've probably studied this dozens of times before in your life. And, and here you are doing it yet again. Why in the world would you just keep on Keep on studying the same thing over and over and over again. It builds your faith. I heard that. 
it's the standard of judgment, isn't it? If you're in school and you've got a history test, and the history test is based on this textbook, if you want to pass that test, you're going to study that textbook <laughs> and learn what it says, right? Well, if, we, if we're going to live by the gospel, then we've got to know what it says. And so if we're, the ultimate judgment uh, to be on the on Lord's left or right is based on the textbook is the Bible, God's word. And so if we study anything at all in this lifetime, it ought to be our Bibles, right? Because that will be the standard of judgment. Well, we're, we might have 30 seconds left here, and there's no point getting started. But, no. I was just going to say also, each time, you, each time you come to the Bible is a different time in your life. It's a whole new thing every time you read it. Because you change. The Bible doesn't, but you do. Okay, so, so things change in our lives so we can make new applications, right? Are we, it, it causes us to be able to see those applications better maybe because of some experience in our life. And I, I know it's the same either. I've heard, I don't know how many people say it over the years, that every time I study this, I find out something that I missed the first time and the second time and the third time, and, and that's the way it always is. So... Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for your comments. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we'll begin uh, lesson number seven, uh, be Matthew chapter 26.